Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and I'm here, as always, with Richard Hill, our Managing Editor and Curator of Everything. How are yes, you, Richard? Look, I'm, well, I'm very curable uh, <laughs> or curatable, uh, but it's great to be here. And here we are. We're, we're doing lots of things. We're, we're putting out lots of fabulous stuff for everybody to, to engage with. Uh, our core resources are... Uh, uh, we're expressing every, those things to everybody as much as possible. And uh, I'm really enjoying looking through them all and uh, reminding myself of the great, amazing depth of stuff we've got. It's fabulous. So, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, that's good. Yeah, so just a reminder to everybody, so our our standard subscription to the Science of Psychotherapy is access to our large library of material that we've been gathering over all of these years, and uh, we've we've separated them into what we're calling core resources. And so we have these core resources that you can access and have a chat to us uh, in the discussion section of those core resources, but also we've got our monthly magazine as well, which continues to roll on. Everybody get into it, but we have one of our favourite uh, guests. Who have we got, Matt? We've got the very mystical Terry Marks Tarlow. <laughs> She'll <laughs> love that. <laughs> uh, she's always writing. Uh, I'm, I, I said to her, I'm amazed at how much uh, output that she manages. Uh, she's got another piece out here. It's a, it's a short uh, piece called Mythic Imagination Today. The Interpenetration of Mythology and Science, which we wanted to talk to her about. Well, I think everyone knows uh, Terry from before, her, her work with fractals, with epistemology, with uh, complex mm. systems. So how about we just get over there and talk to Terry? Let's talk to Terry. Terry, welcome once again to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to see you. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I am delighted to be with you guys. Hi, Terry. Richard here. Uh, wonderful to see you again. Uh, it's been such a thing. We, we haven't been able to travel. Missed you. So it's good to see you. Oh, thank you. Yes, I know. I miss coming to Australia and seeing you guys in person. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been really difficult, hasn't it? Our living our lives virtually on screens. But, uh, yes. you know, yes. it is what it is. And hopefully we're coming out of that soon. Yes, and this is one advantage to being able to do it, that we can actually have a conversation across half the world is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Hey. Now, you amaze me continually about, uh, the with your output, another book. I mean, how another. do you do it? You must spend the majority of your time writing. Oh, no. I don't <laughs> at all. I spend, I've been spending hours playing the piano. Oh, uh, each day, and I dance almost every day, and of course I have my practice. But I live on fractal time, and if you want to talk about that, that would be a good podcast for it. <laughs> okay. But but I would say, uh, yeah, my output has increased. I've gotten less obsessive about details and more in, into flow. And I'm, I'm doing well with the flow. I'm, I'm able to just like do something once and keep going. And this book is a very short one. Actually, This was an invited monograph. And um, so it's much shorter than a normal book. It's almost like a, an extended essay. So right. um, it's true because the fractal epistemology came out like the same year, which is sort of amazing. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, Mythic Imagination Today, you've got an interesting subtitle there, The Interpenetration of Mythology and Science. Tell me, what does interpenetration mean? <laughs> Ooh, you know what? Interpenetration is a fabulous word, I think, for any therapist who is intersubjectively or relationally inclined, because it really means... In, in terms of subjective experience or intersubjective, it means the self is in the other and the other's in the self. It means there's a full penetration of each side of a boundary into, into the other. And so I, I sort of struggled with uh, this relationship that it evolved for me between science and mythology. I started out thinking that both were coming from the same place, that both were sort of coming from the from the right brain and, you know, converging in a sense that, that mythology converged into science. But I realize it's very much like assuming the unconscious converges into consciousness, not the case. I think they are separate, separate tracks, uh, just like the unconscious and the conscious mind are separate tracks in the brain. And the body, and they don't converge. They are they have a relationship, just like um, just like mythology and science has a relationship. Each has a relationship with the other, and that has evolved over time, of course. And and yeah. and the earlier is mythology, and the roots of science are in mythology. But they definitely are coming on second separate tracks: right brain versus left left brain tracks. I think. Right. Right. And I think. This is this is a really fabulous um, extension of our, our our general discussions of of complexity and emergent properties and so on and so forth, because the the whole idea of of complexity, which you and I have talked about and we've talked about here a lot, is we certainly do have an observable emergent whole that we see, but it is coming from the interreaction of differentiatable elements, so elements that we can actually see as having a, a, a degree of separateness. No, that's and, true too. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about uh, integration, sure, that's lovely, and, but that's very much about the emergent property. But in the process of, of interaction that goes on before it emerges, this idea of the term that they penetrate, that they perturbate with each other and, uh, uh, and, and create... Um, disruptions create harmonious elements create all kinds of different things that um, that then can be seen in a degree of separateness even though we know they have eventually a complete connectedness mm. well said richard okay that, that's that, that's good so i mean because i i love the in the abstract it, it, it's beautiful that you, you talk about mythology as perception and plus imagination and science as systemic observation and experimentation, which is beautiful, although I can see perception applying in both in both areas. Of course, yes. Uh, and projection also. And, projection and projection. And so is this the way in which they can um, penetrate each other? Is this the through these common elements? What Sure. Yeah, through through common, absolutely through the, through their common elements. I think perception is a really important one. That we uh, mythology comes 
both both come from fundamental curiosity about how the world works. A dopamine circuit, essentially, that sends us out into the world experimenting in order to get our needs met is the same circuit by which pool, um, tool formation happened. And of course, in starting in mammals, it's not us. It's not just us. So science, you could say there's a sort of proto-science in animals who use tools to enhance their perception and enhance their mobility, you know, and, and clearly I'm sure there is a left brain element to that as well in animals and mammals uh, that, that use, it's not just mammals, actually birds use tools and, and um, pretty, pretty interesting how the more we learn about the animal kingdom, and we, the more, the more sophisticated we are able to observe, the more we see their they are sophisticated beyond what we thought. And so uh, perception and our hands, I know, Richard, you're really into, you know, sort of the hands as tools and, and as communications and, and, and all of this. So this combination of perception and movement underpins both mythology and science um, how things work. I think the stars are a beautiful illustration of what started in mythology, seeing regularities in the stars and then uh, telling stories. And I think that's the other common element is, is the need to tell stories. So, and especially origin stories, which is why this book focuses a lot on creation mythology. Uh, but that's another important element is wanting to understand where we're coming from. And mythology does that, science does that, but with the stars, we initially, the Greeks, and, and I'm just starting using the Western world, and I understand that science, a lot of sophisticated science preceded that in other parts of the world. But in terms of the Western world, you know, the Greek myths were thrown up into the sky. Um, and then eventually the mythology got drained out of the understanding of how the stars uh, rotate and, and work and, and this sort of thing as it was used for agriculture and planting. And, and, and so both, there's both interpenetration, but then there's the division over time in, in, in evolution, in human evolution, so that they became really separate branches. But um, I love that you're focusing on interpenetration because I think it's still there in both science and in mythology. And I know for myself that my own spirituality comes from science and through science. And so understanding how these things interpenetrate really helps us to think holistically, more holistically, which I am convinced has to happen mm. every ecologically everywhere. So are you saying, so from sort of the science side, you have then gone back and explored the mythology side to make sense of the um, science? Yeah. Or? I, I go back and forth, but right. um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm saying that, that for me, if you think of science as only being the left brain, reductive kind of science, because I'm interested and in, I know you guys are interested in the nonlinear science, which is actually more like a right brain science than a left mm. brain. And yet it's a let, you know, science is inherently more left brain and there you can see the inner penetration as well. So uh, because mythology is 
pretty purely right brain kind of thing and more holistic. And so as we get into nonlinear science, there's that interpenetration is is actually happening yet again. So I think there was a separation and now now it's coming back together. It started together, it separated, and in some ways um, our understanding of these of these two areas are coming back together, especially with secular humanism, for example, too. Us who, you know, are interested in quantum models of, of holism as well as fractal models. My epistemology is a fractal model of holistic thought. So these are these are important ways that this inter- interpenetration happens. Yeah, and just talking about you mentioned quantum. You know, some of those early twentieth century physicists and mathematicians certainly there was a lot of um, uh, right brain, you know, inspiration, um, creativity that sort of spawned some of these ideas. And then then they went to the maybe the left brain to prove, you know, right. to, to make proofs. But um, right, and that's a good point that the creative process always starts on the right, moves to the left. Uh, you know, for for, uh, either for systematic testing or observation or checking and this sort of thing, and then back to the right again. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I also bring up the quantum because uh, my my latest paper. So, I also have two papers that are coming uh, in psychoanalytic dialogues. Uh, one just came out with Yaakov Shapiro, who's the psych- one of the, the people that um, psychiatrist in Canada who uh, is one of the editors of the Fractal Epistemology. And we did varieties of clinical intuition, the local, meaning the, you know, you're sitting in the room, body to body, uh, person to person, perception is direct. And the non-local, which is uh, all that uncanny stuff, psychic stuff, which us therapists encounter all the time. And I stayed away from initially when I was doing clinical intuition, but now I'm comfortable enough. I feel more grounded in the science. Anyway, so we did a, a quantum model for non-local information sharing. Okay, um, in- interesting. When when does that come out? It's out. It's oh, out. It is. There's uh, two commentaries and a response to the commentaries. And then um, next issue of Psychoanalytic Dialogue will have um, the fra- a fractal model of synchronicity and two right. commentaries and a response. And so... No, I, I guess I am interpenetrating, if you will, science with um, psychology and neurobiology, this kind of different kinds of science, whether it's fractal geometry or it's quantum. Um, and it's really Yaakov is the quantum expert. I'm an epistemology expert. But. And telling stories is the other piece. I'm, I, as I teach clinical writing, which I do at Pacifica, I have gotten um, so tuned into how our brains are wired to tell stories. And, and the more that I can present this information as story, the more compelling it is, I find, what teaching or in any way, because otherwise it just goes over people's head. And I, I'm gaining confidence that there is a way to tell a story about these, these ideas that can touch anyone if I'm smart enough <laughs> to, yeah. to tell Way, you know? uh, yeah. I'm just, I mean, the thing that interests me, the, the word that kept popping up as I was going, in, uh, is the word literalism. Uh, those and and seeing it as a, uh, I've always seen it as a sliding scale. This uh, this this interesting thing. I was listening to something the other day as as I was preparing for this was Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson, 
and he, someone was asking him about gravity. And he, he said, well, science can tell you uh, what gravity does because, you know, we measure it. We, we can tell to some degree how it does it uh, because we look at various things. But we have no idea why it is. And I think this is one of the things that, for me, gives a lot of difference is that in, in science and in a lot of Western culture, we're looking for what is right, you know, for what is what is correct. Whereas in mythology, we're looking for what gives form and shape and what gives connection uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot more, you know. Uh, and, and what gives heart. And what, and, gives, and what gives heart. And, and I think this is, of course, one of our greatest problems is where uh, beautiful mythologies, uh, which I see occurring in, in a lot of religious areas, you know, belief-based systems, sort of imagined story of things, where there's this, this rather vigorous argument to try and make it literal. So it becomes, um, becomes discordant. As you've gone through and you're talking in this whole process, one of the important words that really comes through is metaphor, which exactly. covers this whole thing. So I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a, a expansion on that's really the one that all my chatter has just led to. Yes. Okay. Well, I the more I delve into all these areas, the more the body is the center of it all. And so uh, the Lake of and Johnson perspective of embodied metaphors really colors my way of thinking. And so their idea is that starting with babies, it's metaphor that allows a bootstrapping process from a very concrete, I'm going to stick a ball on my head as I'm a little baby, and that's a hat, and that's a concrete metaphor. And over time, as, as words and concepts get understood in this embodied way, then the body drops out and gets more and more abstract and less and less literal. And metaphor, so they believe that metaphor is at the basis of all cognition. And I believe that too, all understanding that it's all metaphor in the sense that we're always working with similarities and differences. So we use the similarities to bridge over to something new and then the differences to explore what's different about it. And And just, it's like a fractal, you know, iteration over and over again into these new areas. And so metaphor is both um, at the basis of the most primitive form of cognition, but then it's also at the basis of the most extraordinary forms of creativity, whether it's artistic creativity or scientific creativity and the whole, all the creativity researchers by association kinds of ideas where um, those are all metaphorical, you know, where, where two different things come together and to create something new, it's really through metaphor that that can happen. And so we, when we look at mythology, it's all metaphorical, but it's, it's very, very interesting that something as basic as math they would think is like the most concrete thing of any, also according to Lakoff and Nunez, is also metaphorical. And so it turns out that the idea even of a number, which crows can count, so, you know, animals can count, uh, but the idea of a number is metaphorical as well, depending on whether you think of it as a point on a line or an object in a group. There are several different um, metaphors 
of how number can be conceived. And each one leads to a different branch of mathematics. And they sometimes contradict one another, which you don't think about math as contradicting, being inherently contradictory, but it is. And so right and wrong breaks down. It breaks down. Right and wrong isn't the best uh, way because complexity includes paradox. And so um, things are, the universe is inherently paradoxical at all levels. At the quantum level with wave and particle and uh, psychologically with opposite feelings and motivations and uh, even math has this has this inherent contradiction in it. And so we got to sort of let go of thinking there's absolute truth or there's absolute correctness and embrace the metaphorical nature of everything. Wow, that was like quite a... Oh. That's beautiful. I mean, because linguistics, which is you know where, where I did a lot of my and still do a lot of my work, is the same thing. Language itself is a metaphoric representation, uh, and 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 as an interpenetration of language structure and and uh, our reactions to the world, our integration with the world. But but I just want to bring it into the therapy room a little bit. Uh, now, is am I drawing too long a bow? Uh, and, and I know I say this sometimes, and maybe, but I'd love to get your response. That actually, what we call mental conditions that we observe, those emergent properties, depression, anxiety, and so on and so forth, they in themselves can be looked upon as metaphors for something to take us as a way of taking us into the deeper, the deeper space beneath them. Uh, That's interesting. I have never thought of it that way. And I'd have to think about a little more to, you know, sort of make that connection. Uh, Certainly in therapy, um, I think more in terms of our story about ourselves and who we are and how metaphorical that is, how mythological that is, going back to to mythology. Like, you know, all of the... uh, goddess goddess women as goddesses or you know that that whole movement that came out uh, decades ago is is one example or taking myth, uh, mythological stories of, of you know the greek gods and understanding our own psyche and, tor- and according to them which by the way did you like that uh, the way that i reinterpreted the myth of psyche which is the whole origin of psychology yeah um, word psychology and the word psyche. Um, So that's more how I think of it rather than symptoms metaphorically, but I'm sure there's something to what you're saying. I'd have to think about it. Yeah. I mean, it was just a a, a sort of a thought that that arose in my mind as as an element of the way I've interpreted it, because looking at the the Greek gods particularly, they were named after emotive states. They they were, you know, and we have that, you know, in our, um, certainly in the Aboriginal dream time, and we had it a lot of the uh, American Indian stories, we, we right. see these um, these uh, idealizations of, of of mental states and emotional states in the exactly. Gods. I think that's a good way of, of of looking at it. Is that the the reason there that these stories are so resonant psychologically is because they emerged initially from the psyche. They're projected out. And they get interjected back in. Um, in ways that become meaningful to people because there's a universal element to to it. There's also obviously cultural specific elements too. 
So um, on that point, are we able just to take a step back and, and talk about maybe what are the core myths and how did they come about? Well, yeah, and 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 clearly, Jung was it spent a lifetime, uh, and you know, and and Joseph Campbell also, and yep. looking at four myths of uh, the good mother, the bad mother, the you know, um, the, the witch and the guide, spiritual guide, and and this sort of thing. But I think when it comes to um, when it comes to looking at science and mythology it's really useful to look at the core set of myths around creation stories and uh, Marie Marie von Franz has a beautiful book uh, called creation myths and a lot of my thinking about this and about our understanding of origins because of course uh, the whole when Freud embraced the Oedipus myth, Apparently, that's when his whole system took off. That was a way that, yeah, which is a really inter- which is really interesting to to me that you know that 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 became the myth of universal myth of of, of development for him. But uh, in terms of creation stories, there are a lot of different a set of core myths. So, for example, God as create artist. For example, like a lot of indigenous culture has humans being fashioned out of clay and different, you know, different stories of or using the fire to to get them, you know, to ripen them or this this sort of thing or potter, you know, being a potter and God is potter. So there's that. That is one one set. And then there's a sperm and egg set uh, where the, you know, there's a germ germ of, of creation in the universe that sort of fits human fertilization processes. And then but then the one that I really focused on in this book is the difference between top-down and bottom-up myths. And, and I was really excited to uh, link that to human physiology, which I, as far as I know, no one's done that before, where myths that are top-down, for example, our Western Judeo-Christian is a top-down one because God is up in heaven and creates the earth below. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Your Aboriginal myths are bottom-up ones because I think that they, um, the gods are down in the middle of the earth and sort of emerge out to the surface. Yeah. And so a, a, a big difference that von Franz talked about is that there, when it's bottom up, it's more sort of instinctual. It starts in the instinctual end. And when it's top down, it's more cerebral, which fits with the difference between the right brain being this emergence up from the body to the mind through the senses and the emotions, whereas deliberate thought, conscious reasoning is a is a top down process from from the thought into the body and actualization and, and material existence and this sort of thing. So that these two different directions are particularly interesting in terms of imagination, the relationship between imagination and perception from a neurobiological point of view, because it turns out that they follow the same pathways. And that there's a bottom up and top down in both of them, but 
imagination has a little more top down and the other is a little more bottom up. So perception is a little more bottom up, but we still do top down. So when we think we see something and we project that in, in, into the world, but it turns out it's not that, that's an, ex, you know, that's the ex, an example of uh, imagination leading perception. Which, which is what we see in, in um, when it becomes dysfunctional or, or, or discordant, we, we see in, in our mental disorder. Of, uh, uh, I suppose that also extends out to when you have um, errors in the, in the neurobiological functioning and you move into delusions and those other various other types of right, schizophrenic type type types of processes. But it also extends out to those of us who have become so disembodied in everyday life that we see, we literally see a table, but we don't see the table. So, so perception drops out and we're just projecting the category onto the world. Um, And it gets devoid of really, you know, an experiential element. Yes, I remember reading somebody who was saying, uh, talking about this very thing of, of the degree to which we perceive and create reality and so on and so forth. And he said, it's, it's entirely reasonable that the table in front of you uh, is, is, is there in, re- in some sort of reality or is there in some kind of perception. But if you're curious and wondering, just walk towards it and see when your knee hurts. <laughs> which which was interesting. So this this but this 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 um the idea of that is just this uh, where things intersect and 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 collide. Uh, right. that, that creates that creates something, and I think it's that collision because you get in, you get into penetration, which is beautiful, right. and then then you just get collision and refusal. Uh, is that something that this? This barrier between um, the, this science and mythology, how does that express itself in? Well, see, I would call, I would say that it's got a fractal boundary, which everything, oh. mostly everything else does, which would mean that it depends on what scale you're looking at it, whether it's an open boundary or an interpenetrating boundary or a closed boundary. Ah, okay. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. which pretty much every other boundary is, and that's the fractal epistemology book is all about boundaries, which we should do. I don't. Did we ever do a podcast on that? I, I can't uh, we remember. did. We did some on the on the fractal thing, but that particular element, which is so important in the therapy room, um, right? So for, important as a part of your observing skills. Uh, right. I'm going to have to go back and read that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, if there is not inter- interpenetration in the therapy room between the, the patient and and the therapist, nothing, no healing will happen because yeah. otherwise it's two separate people, and they're just taking turns, but they're not really taking in the other. And if the other is not taken in, there's no transmutation of anything. You know, nothing. Nothing. No, no, no co-creation. Yeah. 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 When when we're talking about psychopathology, can we, uh, so do you see the fingerprint of mythology in all psychopathology? Hmm. That's another interesting question. (laughs) With all these interesting questions. Um, not necessarily. I mean, I, I, I wonder though, or, or maybe if what you mean is, is there a mythological story that corresponds to all psychopathology? I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Okay. Yeah, like especially those gods, those Greek gods, for example. A lot of them were really angry and they killed. Right. And they, you know, they were sociopaths and they were. Or how about those trickster figures that steal and that trick and 
oh, and I love the trickster. I mean, I love the trickster figure. It's very paradoxical. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's interesting. I'm I'm watching this the, the, the Disney thing at the moment with uh, Loki. Oh, you are. Yeah. And there, there's some certain things about the story which um, I go, oh, I don't know. But there's so much interesting stuff about watching um, when they get it and when they when they're just sort of doing yes. movie making. And you go, whoa, Trickstar, wow, we just don't know where we got. And I think the actor gets it. He gets it, but he doesn't get it. But he certainly portrays it really nicely. So Loki is in my book, and um, I think it's a really good example because he winds up getting punished by the gods by having, what is it, oil dripping down on him, hot oil, I think. And then it, it is the origin of earthquakes, as I recall. Loki's punishment is the origin of earthquakes. Now, what's interesting about that is that the trickster figure is a metaphor for chaos in nature, for unpredictability in nature. And earthquakes are the, the prototypical chaotic chaos in nature. And this is where ancient wisdom circles back around to modern science. And that is another part of the interpenetration. Yeah. And so it gives yeah. you that it gives you that sense of why as you're exploring the the what and the how. It gives you a little bit of a sense of why, but it also gives you a chills to think about. Uh, science discovering something that ancient people talked about without any scientific basis. And that's where intuition mm. is really smart, where intuition is the most complex perceptual category. So I think that this all comes from, uh, you know, intuition just being so attuned, the, the most attuned and the most complex and the most holistic uh, way of understanding the world. And of course, uh, every, as we were saying, every scientific discovery starts out with a right brain in, intuition that then gets verified through the left brain. So there it is in that circle from the right to the left back to the right again, which also we do as therapists all the time. We, we start out, we come in uh, with open attention, trying to turn on our right brain. And then we hear a detail, we focus in, we ask for explanation, we go to the left, then we go to the right. We keep going back and forth really rapidly, shuttling. So that's kind of the concept of shuttling is also important for how that interpenetration happens. Yes, I am always fascinated how uh, uh, modern people get fascinated at um, uh, earlier perceptions. And, and of course, we invent stories of the, the aliens came and gave it to us and because those people couldn't possibly have had the knowledge. And as you say, this intuitive intuition plus attunement uh, is an extraordinary thing. And, you know, we go back to the atomists in the Greek times uh, who were looking at these tiny particles, this, having this intuitive attuned perception that nature could go down to those elements uh, mm -hmm. was not, uh, was what, what, what do the people describe as so beautifully, not being a genius, but, but tapping into the genius. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you've, I think you've captured that, um, that opportunity for us to understand beautifully in this book. Uh, I think that's one of the elements that, that, that I adored. It gives me the opportunity to believe that I can tap into the genius. 
Go for it, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was recommending that everybody go read the book because because they will feel they hopefully will feel the same. That's um, a good idea too. Thank uh, you. <laughs> but you know, when you yeah. write these things, the the other ones, the fractal work, the epistemologies, the, these things, I mean, you constantly give me hope um, and confidence in my own creativity, uh, and yeah. um, that's the joy. And that's why I love talking to you, you know. Oh, I love talking to you too. And I think we're... That's brilliant. Yeah. And, and we'll also get um, we'll, we'll get some links for your recent writings as well that you mentioned. We'll have to point our people to that as well. I think we've arrived at a bit of a, a, bit of a pausing time. I think the world is now wanting to, to, to go and think about this uh, enthusiastically. So we'll, yeah. we'll, call it, we'll, call it a, we'll call it a close for now. Because you're not going anywhere, we're not going anywhere. We'll 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 certainly come and talk again. Awesome! Yeah. I would love to talk again, and thank you so much for the opportunity to do it. Fantastic, Terry Marks Tyler. Thank you so much for being here on the Science of Psychotherapy. It was so great to talk to you. You are most welcome, and thank you so much, Matt and Richard. <laughs> thank you. See ya. Ah, uh, yeah, of course, Terry's great. I love yeah. love her stuff, um, and uh, in this thing, you know, she's writing, she's dancing, she's uh, playing the piano, <laughs> and she's doing yeah. all the things that that I think uh, lead to. And I just think of Ernie Rossi's word that he 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 brought to me from from Otto in the twenties: numinosum, this mm. um, this wonder, fascination, this incredibleness and tremendousness of of our existence and experience. And I yeah. I think that's what knowledge needs to be about not yeah. about refining and defining and 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 minimizing it's it's expansive that's what i want yes yes and certainly yeah she gets you thinking along expansive lines doesn't she well just and that leads us to this terrible replug of us but you know the the science of psychotherapy it's a place where you come and there's so much expansive thought we're not pushing any barrow we're not pushing any mm. one thing we're pushing a, an, an insight and some kind of awareness about Almost everything. That's what makes uh, the things that interpenetrate. I love yeah. it. Yeah, Richard, and we know that our subscribers, our, our tribe, have this intrinsic motivation to be curious and to discover more. And we just love catering to those people. Yeah, their fascination absolutely uh, amazes me and uh, and pleases us. Anyway, uh, I guess that's that's it for now because uh, we, we better let people get back to their stuff and we get back to ours. But uh, thanks to Terry and, uh, uh, of course, we'll have the show notes uh, with all the, the connections and links to everything that's going on. And uh, I guess that's us for now, isn't it? That's it. Thank you, everybody. We know that your time is valuable and we really appreciate you tuning in to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. We will catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.